All right, we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews 2. If you've got your Bible, you can open it up to Hebrews 2. And we're going to look at this uh, pretty, pretty long passage between verses 5 uh, through the end of, uh, of that chapter. Let me just say that um, the book of Hebrews and this passage as well uh, are complex, rich, deep. And when I say complex, I don't mean complex like the tax code. I mean complex like a Bach fugue, okay? Beautiful and rich and interwoven. And, and we're going to get a little bit of that. But let me encourage you, soak in this the rest of the week. You can use the study guide that's out there if you've already picked one up. But soak in this because you're going to get more and more the more time you spend with it. All right, listen now as I read to you from God's Word. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It was testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Uh, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. God gives us his word because he loves us and he wants us to know him better. All right, when I say the word substitute, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's a substitute teacher. Maybe it's a substitute teacher like this. That nice, young, pretty substitute teacher who always just lets you watch movies all day, the one that you got excited about. Or maybe this is the substitute teacher that you think of. <laughs> He's got his eye on you, Balake. Or maybe it's a substitute that, you know, was just the mean substitute, right? The one who was angry all the time, who just kind of wanted that little bit of six hours of power and control that she could exert over you, and you were going to do everything her way. I remember in fourth grade reading this great book called 13 Ways to Sink a Sub. Right? It was about the war between the class and the substitute. Or maybe when you think substitute, it, your mind goes to the, to the realm of sports. 
And the substitutes are the ones who aren't quite as good enough to play, and so they're the bench warmers. They're the ones who don't come in very often. They're the subs. I remember growing up, uh, 1987, the NFL went on strike. All the players went on strike, and there was a few weeks where there were no games at all. And then finally, the league brought in substitute players. And they were not really professional football players. They were not quite as good as the real football players. In fact, uh, people just kind of started to become really apathetic about NFL football. They just stopped going to games altogether. The stadiums looked uh, kind of like this. Yeah, there was, uh, there was one week in Philadelphia where 4,000 people showed up. The stadium seats 68,000 and 4,000 people showed up. Usually when we hear the word substitute, when we think about that, it's not a good connotation for us. But what if substitute was actually the person who could do the things that we can't? What if the substitute was the person who is most perfectly equipped, the ideal person perfectly equipped to do what you and I cannot do? What if you walked in to take your physics exam and the teacher said, oh, no, no, actually, there's a professor of molecular physics uh, at MIT here to take your exam for you. You would at that point say, okay, I'm okay with a substitute, right? And, you know, when we have problems, we don't normally think, you know, I've, uh, I've never replaced a transmission before. In fact, I've never replaced my oil before, but let's give this a shot. I think I can do this. You would never do that. You take it to the substitute, the person that actually knows how to do the things that you don't know how to do. You would never think, there's a pain in my chest, my left arm is going numb, I think I'm having a heart attack, somebody find me a scalpel, let's get to work. No, you want to go to the doctor, the person who actually knows what he or she is doing. Our lives with the Lord are like this as well. In fact, substitution plays a major theme, not only all through the book of Hebrews, but all through God's word. It is a major piece of what it means, actually, to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The theologian and writer and pastor John Stott uh, said it this way. He said that uh, really the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. I think that's true. We were created to love and to know and to serve God, to have him at the center of our lives. But we are so oftentimes finding substitutes, work, relationships, the people around us, what other people think about us, money, power, control, any of those things that we substitute where God, that we put in the place that God is supposed to be. The Bible calls that sin. But also what the Bible says is that God has overcome our sin by substituting himself for us, by giving us Jesus to be the substitute that we could never be, by living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we deserve and raising us to new life if we are united to him. If all that sounds really new to you, come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you about it. But what we're going to talk about today is ways in which Jesus acts as this substitute for us and particularly ways in which Jesus acts as the ideal substitute. Because again, when you're feeling those heart pains, it might be kind of okay to have somebody who took CPR in order to be a lifeguard 25 years ago, but really what you want is a cardiologist. You want the ideal substitute. That's what we're going to look at today. 
We're going to look actually at five ways that Jesus is the ideal substitute for us. Five ways in which Jesus actually takes our place, doing for us what we cannot. And I know oftentimes preachers can only speak in threes. Sometimes we have to throw a couple more at you just to keep you on your toes, okay? So five ways in which Jesus is our ideal substitute. We're going to start with this, is that Jesus is the ideal man. Jesus is the ideal man, and when I say man, I don't just mean men, I mean actually human beings. Look with me at verse 11. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That was verse 10. Actually, here's verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then if you skip to verse 14, therefore the children share in flesh and blood. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus has actually become like you and me. He has become one of us. This is an amazing proclamation. Because if you remember back to chapter 1, he's already told us that Jesus is the exact representation of the glory of God. That he actually created the entirety of the world. That he is 100% God. And now we learn that he is also 100% human. That he is made like us in every way. That Jesus was a real person with real skin and bones and flesh. And he had a particular color hair and particular color eyes, and he was a particular height and weight, and before he was a man, he was a boy, and before he was a boy, he was a baby, and he was born with so many pounds and so many ounces. 100% like you and I, Jesus is fully our brother. But here's the amazing thing about it is he's not just like us, he is actually the ideal man. In Genesis 1, when God created man and woman, he created them to be like him in most ways, to actually rule the way that he would rule, to love the way that he would love, to relate the way that he would relate, to care for the creation and for those around them the way that he would. They were made ideal. Sin actually broke that ideal apart, but Jesus is not broken by sin. He is the ideal man, like us, but better. I had a friend when I lived in Austin who, uh, who drove an Aston Martin. You know what an Aston Martin is? Here's a picture of it. This is the most wonderfully, beastly, incredible car you could ever find. If you've ever seen a James Bond movie, James Bond always drives an Aston Martin. It is British. It is like 100% muscle and 100% luxury altogether. And I had the opportunity to, to, to sit in this car one time to start it up, he actually gave me the option of driving it. But I'm telling you, when you sit in a car like this and you look over that, that long hood with the V12 underneath it, I mean, I started that car and I'm not lying, I was afraid because it felt like it was going to consume me. It eats other cars and I think other drivers for lunch sometimes. And when you're sitting and wrapped in the luxury and the beastly power of that, you just can think like this is what a car is supposed to be. Like, this is the epitome of car. And then I got out of that car, and I got into my 2004 Honda Pilot. <laughs> Still a car. But not quite the same, right? It's not the ideal car. It's a car, but it's not the ideal. 
Jesus is 100% man, but he is also the ideal man, the man and the woman that we were supposed to be. Now, why does all this matter? It matters actually because of what we read here at the end of this passage. Listen to this in, chapter, in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, because Jesus is like us, he can actually identify with us. He knows what it means to be tempted. But because Jesus is the ideal, he can help us in temptation. I wonder, do we really believe that? Do we believe that Jesus identifies with us in our temptation and can help us in the midst of temptation? When it is late at night and it is just you and a screen and you can get to any image you want to in a matter of seconds, do you really believe that Jesus identifies with you and can help you fight that temptation? When gossip is just on the tip of your tongue and you know that if you say something cutting about another person, that all the other people around you are going to feel like you're lifted up just a little bit. If you can bring somebody else down to lift yourself up, give yourself a little more clout in that situation. It's so tempting, isn't it? Do you know that Jesus actually identifies with you in that temptation? And that he can help in the midst of that? When somebody has a low power has low power in their experience, whether it's financially or emotionally, when they are wounded, when they are down. And the temptation is, you know what, I can actually use my advantage, my power, to take advantage of this person, to get a leg up on them, to somehow get above them because of their bad situation. When you are tempted to abuse the power that you have, do you know that Jesus actually can identify with that temptation? And because he is the ideal man, he can help he can enable us to fight temptation. Friends, Jesus is like us, but he is the ideal. When you are tempted, turn to the one who has been made like you in every way, yet without sin. He's the only one that can help. All right, let's move to the second thing about Jesus, the second way that he is our representative. He is the ideal man. He's also the ideal king. Uh, we watched maybe uh, last year, a couple years ago, a good portion of the Netflix series, The Crown. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It is about Queen Elizabeth and Queen Elizabeth as she is coming to understand kind of her, or her queenly identity. I don't know if queenly is a word. She's really grappling with that. What does it mean to be royal? What does it mean to be the queen of England? What does it mean to kind of take all of this on? And like any good television show or movie, it brings you into that question. It's meant to have you start to ask that, man, what would it be like to be royal? What would it be like to have everybody call you your majesty? What would it be like to sit on that throne? Uh, this picture right here is, uh, is a picture of LeBron James. LeBron James, NBA star, oftentimes referred to as King James. Get it? And here's LeBron sitting in his throne. We got some lions, which is really nice. There's a really great commercial uh, from a few years ago, an ESPN commercial that starts like this. It, it shows LeBron actually coming into the ESPN offices like he works there, 
okay? And he comes into his cubicle. He's a desk. He's a, he's a cube worker. And he sits down uh, at his desk, and he sits down into this, this tiny, kind of mediocre, cheap office chair. And all six foot eight, 250 pounds of LeBron just overwhelms this chair, and it just kind of sinks down to the ground. And this, the, his face says, this is not my chair. This is not working well. And at that point, you kind of zoom out, and you see that in the cubicle next to him is Scott Van Pelt, one of the Sports Center anchors. And Scott is sitting in a throne like that. And it's about two feet above his head, and he's got, you know, like the, the, the fur and everything. And he's just sitting there working on his computer, sitting in the throne. And LeBron kind of pokes his head around the corner. And he says, uh, hey, Scott, you didn't happen to accidentally, like, switch chairs with me, did you? And uh, Scott says, no, LeBron. I don't know what's going on. I hope you find your chair. It's a funny commercial that also I think touches on something that's very common in us is that we want to be a king. We want to feel what that's like. We want to feel what it's like to sit in a throne. Do you know that that sentiment is actually a biblical sentiment? There's a biblical truth tied to that. What the author of Hebrews quotes here in the early portions of this passage is Psalm 8. Psalm 8, in its original context, actually paints a picture of somebody sitting and looking at the stars. The psalmist is looking at the stars, and when you look at the stars, or if you're in the Rocky Mountains, or you're looking at something that's vast, the initial feeling is, I'm so small. But the psalm actually moves from there into the truth about what humanity is is that humanity actually has been crowned with glory and honor by its creator. That you and I were meant to rule. Again, Genesis 1, God gives Adam and Eve the rule over all creation. He tells them to govern it well. He tells them to care for it well. He tells them they're in charge. That is part of being human beings. Now, we don't use that rule very well often, do we? If you've ever been to a place like the World War II Museum in New Orleans and walked through and seen people like Hirohito and Mussolini and Hitler, you know that our ruling is not so good. The history of mankind ruling is typically a pretty bad history, pretty dark. But the beauty of what the writer does here, too, is really amazing. This is, again, some of that beautiful intricacy, like that Bach fugue, is that he takes Psalm 8 and he says, this is what mankind is supposed to be. And because he knows Jesus is the ideal man, he places Jesus at the center of it, and he says that Jesus is also the ideal king. As mankind was meant to rule, Jesus now takes on that full responsibility. He has been crowned with glory and honor above all. He has, through his suffering and death, been given the glory to reign over all. And Jesus now reigns over all of the universe, over all of creation, over you and I. He is a good and right and just king. As we read in Psalm 19, his ways are true, his law is good, it is beautiful. That is who Jesus is as our king. And as his kingdom grows in our heart, as his rule grows in our hearts, his kingdom actually begins to grow in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Once we see Jesus' rule growing more and more in our hearts, we will see his kingdom actually increase in our lives and in our community and in our world. So let me just ask you, is there territory in your heart that you need to cede back to King Jesus? 
Are there places in your heart that you are saying, I just don't want you to rule here. <laughs> you could take this other stuff. Don't take my bank account. You can take this other stuff. Don't take my family. You can take all this other stuff. Don't take my free time. Are there places in our heart that we need to be allowing Jesus to come in and do the work of ruling that he does? To see his kingdom established more in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Now let's move on to number three. Jesus is not only ideal man, ideal king, but he is also our ideal, our ideal champion. Look at verse 10. It was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, we hear founder, and we think kind of of entrepreneurs, right? Here's the guy that founded that club or founded that business or whatever it is. But that word actually in Greek has a broad meaning. It can mean the beginning of something, but it also can mean something more like hero, the one who has won the salvation. In fact, he makes this a little more clear here in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, and listen here, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, when we think of champion, we just think of a winner. We think of somebody who's won a contest. But in the ancient world, a champion was not just someone who won. It was someone who won for another. A champion was one who won a victory on behalf of another group. We kind of get this, the Olympics, we have somebody who wins and we think like our entire country has won because that person has won this event. We even talk about this as sports fans. We talk in these terms, we won. Really, you didn't play, but we won, right? We are identified with the people who actually did the winning. Probably the best example of this in the Bible is a, a pretty familiar story maybe to most of you. It is the story of David and Goliath. And we're oftentimes very concerned with what David does with Goliath, and we forget who Goliath and David both were. When you open up the story of David and Goliath, what you see is the, the armies of the Philistines and the Israelites perched at the top of these two hills. They're ready to fight each other, but they're not fighting. They instead have actually sent down somebody into the valley that is a champion, and that's Goliath for the Philistines. In fact, what he calls out to the Israelites is very telling. He says, send somebody down here to fight me. And if you win, we'll be your slaves. And if I win, you'll be our slaves. You hear that? That's a champion. That's someone who is winning for the sake of another. And so what David does is he comes in and he fights Goliath, of course, and he wins and cuts off his head. But he doesn't just win for him. He wins for the whole people. And all of God's people then celebrate this victory because his victory is theirs. They have been brought in to that victory because their champion has won it for them. What the Bible says here is that Jesus has actually won a victory deeper and broader and more enormous than we could ever imagine. That he has defeated the forces of evil in the world. That he has defeated death itself that he has defeated the power of sin in our lives. Jesus has won that victory, and if we are united to him by faith, his victory is also our victory. And did you pick up on that last part? 
that we have been removed from the slavery that comes with fear. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that so oftentimes in our lives, the things that we turn to, we turn to because we think that they're going to make us feel free. Something that's going to make me feel free, going to make me feel alive, make me feel like nothing is constraining me. Whether that is food or drink or drugs or sex or money or power or influence, whatever it is, the things that we turn to that make us feel like we're just a little bit more alive, like there's nothing constraining us, like we can do anything. Friends, what the writer to Hebrews just said is that we already have that. It's that Jesus has already given it to us. He's given us that freedom. He's released us from that bondage. Why would we go searching for something that we already have? It's the beautiful truth of the gospel. The freedom has already been given to us. We just have to dig into it and enjoy it. All right, let's move on to this fourth thing. Jesus is also our ideal priest. We've said he's the ideal man, the ideal king, the ideal champion. He is also now our priest. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, if you grew up in an evangelical Protestant world or if you grew up outside of the church, then probably the idea of priest doesn't have a lot of, uh, you don't have a lot of attachment to that. If you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you may understand what a priest is, although if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you also may have a misunderstanding of what a priest is in many ways. In fact, that word may be a very bad word in your memory. But in the Bible, the priest had a very particular and very important role. I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament. Just remember with me, as God rescues his people out of Egypt, they've been slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh, the most powerful man uh, leading the most powerful country in the world at the time. And God rips his people out. He does so by uh, inflicting all of these plagues on Egypt. He takes them out with a powerful hand. He leads them through the Red Sea on the dry ground, parting the waters. He meets them there in the desert of Sinai and then does something amazing. He meets with Moses on the mountain of Sinai and he tells him two, two really important things. One, I'm going to finish what I started. I'm going to bring you into this land of promise that I had promised to your forefathers before. We're going there and I'm going to open up the doors and settle you there. I'm going to do it. And secondly, he says something amazing. He says, and I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to move in. You're actually going to get my presence alongside you. Now, if you are an Israelite at that time with even a few wits, it immediately is coming to your mind, how in the world is this going to happen? How will the creator of the world, a God who is holy and just and mighty, how in the world is that going to work when he moves into the same neighborhood with me, who's not any of those things? Well, the book of Leviticus, if you've ever wondered what in the world is the purpose of the book of Leviticus, it's the answer to that question. How is it going to work when a holy God moves in with an unholy people? And a big piece of that is something called the priesthood. The priesthood was a class of people, a group of people who would act as a representative between and a mediator between God and the people. 
And the priest would come and offer sacrifices. That's one of the major things that he would do. He'd come and he'd offer a sacrifice to God for the people. See, what the Bible says is that there is some really bad news. Half of the gospel, what we call the good news, is actually bad news. And it is that our sin is so bad that something has to die. Our sin is so bad that we are so divided from God that something has to, that blood has to be shed. Now, the good news, of course, is that God has done something about it. But what the priest's job would be to do then would be to bring that sacrifice to God and thereby make things right between God and the people. They would offer that sacrifice and everything would then be okay. That big word I read, propitiation, crazy big theological word, it really just means substitution. It's a substitute sacrifice that would satisfy God. God is completely just. He needs things to be justly handled. And the propitiation, the sacrifice, then stands in the place of the people so that those who deserve the punishment don't get it. And the unguilty animal actually does take the punishment for him. That's what the priest would do and what the writer of Hebrews is saying here to us. And this is actually a theme that's going to run all through Hebrews. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time on this. He talks about Jesus being the one who is the high priest then, who would then go and take this offering, so thereby making us right with God. Those who had run from him, those who had sinned against him, those who had pushed him away have been made right with him through the priest's offering. All right, so all of those four that we just talked about, right, ideal man, ideal king, ideal champion, ideal priest, if you're in the original audience here, which is somebody with a Jewish background, those would have made a good bit of sense. Jesus, the ideal man, and of course, if he's the ideal king, he can be the ideal man and the king because the king is a man, right? And if he is the ideal king, he can also be the ideal champion. We've seen that before in David. And even we've seen sometimes in the Bible how this kingly champion perfect man can perform some sort of priestly activities. We saw it in Samuel, a little bit in Moses. All of that could kind of make some sense for you. It's this fifth one that blows your mind if you're an original reader, is that Jesus is also the ideal sacrifice. That Jesus is not just the priest who brings the sacrifice. Jesus is actually the sacrifice himself. The priest would come in once a year and he would come into the holiest of holies, this very special place in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple where only the high priest could go. And he wouldn't come in by himself. It would be silly to come in empty-handed. He would come in with an animal. And again, the implication is this animal is sacrificed on this altar and what we deserve is then given to this animal. Our sin is taken by this representative, by this substitute, by this animal. He is killed on our behalf. But see, Jesus walks into the high place empty-handed. Like Abraham and Isaac, Isaac saying, Dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Jesus walks in without a sacrifice because he himself is the perfect, spotless lamb. He himself is the sacrifice. We read there that Jesus tasted death for everyone. That doesn't mean he just took a little sip. That means that he actually died for us, for you and for me. He is the propitiation for our sins. 
I don't know if you've seen any of the uh, really incredible uh, documentary series called Planet Earth. It's fabulous. If you haven't seen it, you should go buy it today and watch it. There's this one really amazing story there. Out of many amazing stories, there's a story about a group of ants and a fungus. And it's this crazy kind of mind-eating fungus. What will happen, actually, is this fungus will somehow figure out a way to kind of get into one of these ants. And once it gets a hold of an ant, it actually somehow burrows into its brain, and, uh, and, a, and a fungus actually grows out of the ant's brain. Uh, but before it kills the ant, it turns it into a zombie. And you have this like walking dead ant who's doing anything that the fungus tells him to do. The fungus literally is directing the ant, and this is what he directs him to do. He directs this one ant to go and climb up a tree and get on a branch up high above the rest of the ant colony. And then the ant dies, and the fungus starts to send spores out all over all of the other ants and it infects all of the ant colony, and they all die. Super exciting story. It's actually a really fabulous uh, picture of substitution, of the way that sin actually substitutes itself. This fungus who's burrowed into the very uh, center of this ant's being, and it infects everything and everybody. It's the way that sin works. It infects all of our lives. But look how beautiful the gospel is built into nature. Because this ant colony, this is what's incredible, once they realize what's going on, the ant colony will actually send one ant to go and find this infected ant, and it'll climb up the tree and out onto this branch, and it will go and put the infected ant on its back and carry it down the tree and then carry it out away from the colony as far as it can go. And it'll die because it's carrying the infected ant. It's like walking into uh, an, an Ebola clinic. This ant will die, but no one else will. It has removed the fungus as far as east is from west. That is what Jesus has done for us. The uninfected carrying the infected, taking on death for us so that we do not die. This is how Jesus has come to substitute himself for us, to do the things that we cannot to be the man and the ruler and the champion that we need, to be the priest that offers sacrifice and to himself even be that sacrifice for us, that we might be made right with God. I'm going to close in prayer, but before I do, I'm going to ask this question and let you chew on it a little bit after I pray. How does the understanding, how does a greater understanding of Jesus' substitutionary work in any of these areas, how does it change the way that you love him? How does it change the way that you want to follow him? How does it change the way that you want to proclaim his goodness and his care to those around you? How does a better understanding of his substitution change your heart? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to spend some time thinking about that question. Let's pray. Lord, you are the ideal that we cannot be. It's good for us to say those words. It's good for us to come to grips with the fact that uh, we are not the Christ, as John the Baptist said. <laughs> no better words could be said. It is so good for us to say that truth because then we can also say, and Jesus is. And Jesus is the man that we could never be. The king, the ruler that we need that we can't be on our own. The champion that can win the battles that we can't fight. 
the priest that offers sacrifice for our atonement and even that sacrifice for us. You have laid yourself down for us, Lord. Will you now show us what that means in our lives, in our hearts, in our relationships? We increase in us an understanding of your substitutionary grace for us so that it might change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.